0: Some common sense. Yes,
1: sir. They have the car stopped in town and ranch by fire. We
0: still don't know who pulled the trigger. Everyone and welcome to Police Off the Cuff Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, retired NYPD Sergeant Bill Cannon, a 27-year veteran of the NYPD. And today on the show, we have two wonderful uh, co-hosts. I can't call them guests, really, because they're sort of frequent flyers. Straight out of Brooklyn, retired NYPD Sergeant Phil Grimaldi. How are you doing today, Phil? you promoted me, Billy. I'm not a sergeant. I'm a detective. A detective. Well, we, we also have... Uh, He's not out of Brooklyn. I think he may be out of the Bronx, but we have retired NYPD LeBron. sergeant and Professor Michael Geary. How you doing today, Mike? Good, Billy. Thank you for having me. Hey, it's a it's a pleasure. Guys, you know, when they went to the hearing on this case on Thursday, we were all thinking that uh there wasn't gonna be much coming out of that hearing, you know. And the biggest thing that came out of it was the fact that the defense attorney asked for a six-month stay. So they don't have to be in court until June 26th. And folks may ask, well, why did they do that? Well, because the defense has a hell of a lot of investigating to do. All of the information that has come forward in the probable cause affidavit and even more information and evidence that hasn't been released The defense is going to try to come up with some doubt because we know in our system of justice, the prosecution must prove a case beyond a reasonable doubt. So what is a good defense attorney doing right now? Well, she, it happens to be a she in this case, she's going out there with a bunch of private investigators and maybe some other attorneys, other legal aid attorneys, to try to find information that create doubt. And what is the biggest area that they can uh, create doubt in? Well, how evidence was processed, whether or not we can rely on certain scientific evidence. They're going to, the only way they can, in their opinion, uh, fight this case is to fight the evidence and somehow discredit the evidence. Difficult to discredit scientific evidence. But That is what their job is be, because they got to create doubt. And when the prosecution wants to uh, prove something beyond a reasonable doubt, it's the defense's job to prove uh, that it didn't happen. Just create some doubt. Phil, you want to uh, jump in on this and comment?
2: Yes, absolutely. Now, I'm going to comment on some of the evidence that we do now know from the original uh, probable cause affidavit. They're talking about video evidence of the vehicle. Now, one of the first things... That a defense attorney is going to bring out is when they play that video, uh, can you make out who the occupant of that vehicle is? The answer is going to be no on most of the occasions, unless they have video evidence that shows clearly that it is Brian Kohlberger at the wheel of the vehicle. Now, I don't think that that's going to be the case. Video, uh, you know, moving vehicles is not that great. Although uh, high definition, you can pick up license plates and stuff like that. Uh, Again, they're going to bring up uh, whether or not it's actually Brian in that car. They're going to try and create this mysterious unknown perpetrator. Uh, Perhaps he gave his car to someone else. Uh, They're going to try and bring that type of a... Uh, doubt into the uh, uh, prosecution at trial to try and put the finger on somebody else. I think they're going to run with what Brian said when he was arrested. Uh, Has anyone else been arrested uh, in this case? So they're going to create this other unknown third party or second party perpetrator. Uh, That's going to be one of the things they're going to probably attack. And I think with the cell phone evidence, again, just because it's his cell phone and it's pinging at specific locations and times, they're going to make the argument that perhaps uh, it was someone else uh, in possession of his cell phone. They're not going to be able to say... 100% that it was Brian's cell phone in his hand at the time that it was pinging. Although we're going to have a reasonable uh, assumption that it's his because he never reported it lost or stolen. And when he was arrested, he was in possession of it. So again, there's going to be both sides trying to prove and disprove specific parts of the uh, technical evidence as well as the, uh, the forensic evidence.
0: Absolutely, Professor Mike Geary. Uh, I like everyone to know not only are you a criminal justice professor and a retired NYPD sergeant, but you also happen to collect a law degree somewhere along the way. There, so you're also you're also an attorney, Mike. Uh, I'd like you to comment on uh, what Phil was just talking about, and after you do comment, already the defense is presenting something that, in my mind. Uh, is a little bit outrageous. They're claiming there's a co-defendant code or they're creating they're creating this co-defendant code with absolutely no proof of it. But we'll get to that. Uh, Mike, why don't you comment on some of the things that Phil was talking about?
3: Yeah, I think the, D- the DNA evidence is, is so strong that the only way that they can really attack the evidence is perhaps by looking at irregularities in the collection, the retention, the testing, and the results. But... We've talked about this before. I don't think so that it'll be very successful because the the practice of collecting DNA and processing it and identifying a, a match has been going on and been you know perfected over the course of you know 30 years. So I don't think they're going to get far. But again, remember, all they have to do is is convince one juror, not 12, just convince one out of the 12 that maybe the DNA wasn't collected properly or wasn't analyzed properly. Uh, as far as the cell phone uh, pinging evidence, I'm, I, I would imagine that they will want to seek all of the cell phone pinging from different towers in the area uh, from August, from, from the time that you know school began till the end of the semester, in the hopes that there are other um, sort of trails of a few other cell phones driving by that house numerous times. If, they, if they're successful and there are numerous cell phones in the area driving by that apartment house, um, that, little, that little house uh, over the course of the semester, and I'm sure there is, absolutely, because so many people live in the area, they could say that they could make the claim again. They only have to show some sort of reasonable doubt in one juror's mind that possibly there was other people that had committed this crime. Um, and just one quick other thing about the identification by DM in the affidavit. Uh, She saw his eyebrows and she commented on them and she commented on his general height, but, you know, they're probably, she might not ever have been able to pick him out of a lineup or show up. And so therefore her ID is partial. It's an excellent ID, but it is not one of those IDs that you see in the movies where, she could, you know, the victim is looking at, um, um, you know, a, a lineup uh, in, a, in a police precinct and they pick out that person and they say, OK, that's the person who you know, assaulted me. So there there is avenues to make some arguments for the presence of reasonable doubt, whether they'll be successful or not depends on the jury.
0: You know, Mike, uh, that was a good point in regards to the eyewitness identification because to see his eyebrows, potentially right. she saw his eyes too, and even though there may have been a cutout in the mask, but she saw the top his eyebrows. So, is that good enough? Could you actually say that that's the same guy? I don't know if that's cap- if you're capable. Probably not. That might. But there's also she's not just an eyewitness; she's also an ear witness and she heard what we believe to be the perpetrator say something oh okay, it's okay i'm going to help you now i don't think any prosecutor would take the chance on a voice identification or a voice lineup because if she doesn't pick it out they just lost her uh, yeah. in that part of the identification yeah that's tough that's a tough call now i want to play this this is uh, in the, this is megan kelly and in the middle is marsha clark uh a prosecutor on the O.J. Simpson case, and uh, all the way to the right is a famous defense attorney named Garagos. They're talking about the po- possibility that there's a co-defendant here.
4: Uh, it seems it seems like a typo to me, not by the Daily Wire, but by Ryan Kohlberger's lawyer, but I'll read you what they're reporting. The headline is, Suspected Idaho Killer Requests Documents Related to, Quote, co-defendant who has never been mentioned by police i'll read to you from the report this week colberger's colberger's public defender and taylor filed motions requesting quote any written or recorded statements by a co-defendant and the substance of any relevant oral statement made by a co-defendant whether before or after arrest in response to interrogation by any person known by the co-defendant to be a peace officer or agent of the prosecuting attorney, et cetera. The, um, okay. And then, yeah. And as you know, that this particular defendant previously asked members of law enforcement, if they had arrested anyone else in connection with this crime, I, I gotta say, this sounds like a, it sounds like a typo, like a cut and paste by a busy public defender. But what do you think, Mark?
5: I was just going to say, normally, I would say in a vacuum, I would agree with you. I'd say it's boilerplate discovery request, cut and paste, as you say, that went out there. However, put this next to, and this is why I'm fascinated. I want to see what Marsha has to say about this. There was a ceiling order on a search warrant. And... Uh, the ceiling order had language that I have frankly never seen or I can't remember ever having seen, which was they did, they, part of it was they did not want law enforcement to be exposed to threats or intimidation in and expose the investigation now exposing the investigation Mm -hmm. i've come across a zillion times that's standard operating procedure threats to law enforcement leads me to believe that there is something that apparently they missed and or a thread that they missed or didn't or got out in front of their skis remember the officers had said we're a hundred percent certain this is the guy nobody else i think there is a suspicion that there is somebody else or someone else in the mix.
4: Whoa. Hmm. Marsha, let me read what Mark's referring to just to color it in for the audience. This is the search warrant for Brian Kohlberger's Washington State apartment, which has been temporary.
0: You know, I just wanted to comment on this. First of all, I think this is uh, sort of premeditated. And first of all, by that I mean it was originally set up by the defendant, Brian Kohlberger. When he asked the police when he was arrested, was anyone else arrested? I think he fully knows, and he choreographed that in advance to create doubt. Look, he is a PhD student in criminal justice. He knows what time it is. So I don't believe there is a co-defendant. I 100% believe that. And we know in our system, defense attorneys are allowed to create things that aren't even remotely true. To create doubt. And that's our system. Mike, you want to comment on that?
3: Yeah. Um, I'm not so sure about the uh, initial question that he made to law enforcement in Pennsylvania, his already co defendant. I don't really think realistically that there was another principal in this crime. I'm sure he did this all by himself. It could be that he might have been thinking, and he said in a flipped manner, you know, is there anyone else? Because it is possible that he may have given someone, uh, maybe someone who he actually trusted with uh you know, something to throw away. Throw could you throw this bag away from me, or can I put my garbage in your garbage, or and somebody said yes, or whatever, something innocuous that somebody might have just done for him. And he remembers that and he's asking the maybe the the you know the 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 cops when they arrested him you know in in Pennsylvania wasn't anybody else arrested because he's thinking that you know he might have had some sort of innocuous little bit of help and also so that could be um it, it could also be that um you know he might be smart enough to just throw that out there to create doubt in the cops minds or this demand this discovery demand that the uh, defense attorney is hoping to get, they're hoping to get all kinds of statements because they need this stuff. That's what they need the six months for to go over all this information. Is it possible that they've spoken to him and he's maybe mentioned someone who may, um, he hid the garbage or hid something uh, and maybe somebody just did something for him, a small favor for him, not knowing early on that he was connected. Uh, It's hard to tell but uh, it, they they're dying for that discovery material so they can really get some flesh onto their strategy.
0: Absolutely. Point. Phil, What what's your opinion on this?
2: Well, uh, you know, I'm agreeing with Mike saying, perhaps there is someone that like you said, innocuously was asked to throw something out or get rid of some evidence. But again, we don't know what was on his home computer. Now we know that there's a possibility that he may have been chatting online and discussing whether or not the sheet was left. We don't know for certain yet if that was him. But perhaps there could be some type of a dark website that he was on, perhaps a cult like group that was talking about murders and and maybe uh, his uh, reference to uh, was anyone else arrested could have been that. Maybe he believes that uh, his online chatter could have led to the police, uh, you know, catching up with him. Again, uh- We don't know what it is that they're trying to protect, uh, what evidence is recovered from that Washington uh, University apartment where he lived. Uh, But there's so many possibilities. I think that um, if that is him talking online, perhaps it could be that he was involved in some dark web uh, chat room and they talked about these uh, horrific murders.
0: You know, there's a possibility, but I I tell you, my feelings are, and we're going to connect some of the dots later on with – the the post specifically that Papa Roger post, if that's him, uh, and we'll go over it later. I'm not going to ready to go to that yet. If that's him, I believe he's got big problems because I don't think the defense wants that to be him. And if you're not familiar with it, it's someone that was posting on on the internet about the crime and gave out information before it was ever released. So if that turns out to be Brian Koberger. And they can prove that very easily by it being produced by his computer, the internet service provider. They can already have that information. So a lot of things that we're talking about right now, the defense doesn't have access to because the discovery has not yet been released and has not yet been given uh, to the defense. So when they get a lot of this stuff, we'll have answers to some of this.
4: Temporarily sealed um. That's been sealed. They they ha- they haven't shared with us a search warrant. They've shared with us the affidavit that was in support of the arrest warrant, and it was very detailed. But for some reason, they're sealing the search warrant for the guy's apartment, which was requested on the same day as the arrest warrant, uh, December thirtieth. But now we see why they're sealing it. They say and this is going to remain sealed until March first, potentially earlier, but as of March first, for now, um, this is what they they said in asking for the sealing. Prosecutors and police. Premature public disclosure of the details in this law enforcement investigation will create serious and imminent threat to effective law enforcement and could result in the premature end of this investigation, which could create a threat to public safety. Hmm. What are your thoughts?
6: And I think there are many. <laughs> what, what Mark has said um, is a potential. But let me tell you about some of the background in the development of this case. This case kind of went crazy on social media. And a lot of people were in there speculating about others that may be involved. And then out, out and out dogpiling these people um, with no evidence, nothing but speculation, imagination, and just putting together two plus two and equaling eight. Um, And so some very innocent people got dogpiled for at least a few moments on the internet and by moments that could be days I'm not sure. So it has been going kind of uh, in its way viral and people looking for attention, which always happens on the internet are coming out skewing all of these theories about who might have done it and why they did it. Um, And that is a danger to any investigation. It's a danger to law enforcement because um, it encourages people to come forward who really have nothing relevant to say. It encourages, it discourages people from coming forward who actually have something important to say. Um, and it of course might uh, subject law enforcement themselves to all kinds of threats and and horrible uh, responses on the internet. Uh, this has become now a force in our criminal justice system. It, it lurks around the edges and sometimes it even um, invades to the middle. So we have a very serious problem with that and I think that uh, sealing would be an appropriate way of tamping it down. You just don't want to let out information that could be the way you catch a liar or the way you spot the truth. Those details are the way you test what witnesses say. And if you let those details out, you run a very real risk of skewing the investigation.
4: Well, Mark, don't you think, I mean, that the warrant in support of the sorry, affidavit in support of the arrest warrant, is 18 pages long we have so many details from that why allow that one out into the public domain but not this one
5: well i i don't disagree with you at all i was speculating and that's all we do here i guess but i was speculating that the defense might have requested that that be remain sealed uh but i you know the cynic in me thinks that because the officers in the police department had taken so much heat as marsha describes it that they wanted to show and the one of the I believe it was the chief had indicated once it was unsealed they they would be vindicated so to speak and i suppose that that's one explanation i still think there's something else going on here i suspect that there is another source Profile of DNA or something else that was found at the scene. I just don't think, you know, the. I when you take a look at the timeline of this and you know that there is a DoorDash driver there at 4 a.m. and you know that there is a spotting by DM, as they call the person in the affidavit of somebody in the hallway. There's just, I believe that there is more here than meets the eye, and uh, we're just not going to see it. And I think it's one of the reasons that the defense so readily said they would waive time until June on their speedy trial rights of the preliminary hearing.
0: So, look, we all discussed this. They're talking about, of course, the warrant on his uh, Washington apartment. Uh, Washington State Department. We all think, and I mean, while well, I'll speak for myself, that they recovered some things in that warrant that uh, are potentially, you know, grand slam end the case. You know, the the computer, the computer has got to be just a tre- treasure trove of evidence. You know, if he turns out to be, and we've discussed this before, and we'll get into it a little more later. If he turns out to be that character uh then Papa Roger. The defense wants no part of that. They want no part of that. So as this as more and more information gets released, it seems like it gets worse and worse for Brian Koberg. And of course, he's innocent to proven guilty. But there's already, even with the limited amount of evidence they put out there in the probable cause affidavit, it is is a lot of lot of evidence. Mike?
3: Yeah I think the uh You're right. The defense always seems to take it on the chin every time there's a little bit of evidence that involves Coburg from the uh, initial uh, affidavit to support the uh, arrest warrant. um, And you get some information from people he's known in his past. And then you see these uh, online, the the, uh, Reddit um, online, like narrative, the Papa, you know, narrative, um, a posting from July 4th, 2011, where he talks about his, you know, disassociation with his family, things go from just bad to worse. And I think what they're trying to do, you know, remember the, the lady who's in charge of his defense, she 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 knows what she's doing. She's this isn't her first uh, capital case. And I think what what uh, is necessary and proper for law enforcement, you know, in on one hand to protect the uh, the investigation and people's names and identification from online harassment. it The secrecy surrounding it loans itself to conspiracy theories about a second individual who was actually a principal who you know they could make out to be the getaway driver or, or the, the person who was really part, uh, know, knew all along what was going on. They, it allows them to create this sort of fiction. So by the time they come to the trial, they may have put this out there so often and spoken about it so often. It, it, remember, all they have to do is hang up one juror. So it could Absolutely. be a tactic.
0: You know, look, we followed this since November 13th, and we saw all of the conspiracy theories, uh, all. There was there was tons of them. You know, the food truck guy, uh oh, yeah. the guy, the neighbor who, you know, was going to law school, he looks suspicious. You know, he's the guy, the boyfriend, he didn't answer the phone. You know, so- you could see how it takes on a life of its own when the internet runs with it and then there's people that just invent stuff themselves Phil, what's your what's your thoughts? Well, Bill, I'm glad you brought that up. The conspiracy theories might be the simple
2: explanation for why they're sealing this search warrant that was done over at his Washington apartment. There were so many things flying around on the internet from the very beginning about this case that they perhaps wanted to preclude any of these conspiracy theories from going forward. Now, I don't think it's wrong of me to assume, or you or Mike, that there's going to be a treasure trove of Evidence against Brian Kohlberger related to that apartment. It's apparent that he was doing surveillance in and around the location where the murders took place from August. So, what, uh, you know, we don't have to take a giant leap to think that he was perhaps on his computer doing the same thing. Maybe perhaps looking on uh, real estate sites to look at the location, maps, different things like that, searches. So, again, Did he have evidence that he transferred from the crime scene back to his apartment? Those are all very, very powerful things that we have to explore. And I just want to piggyback one of the things that Mike said early on with regard to DM. DM sees a figure in the house wearing a mask. She describes the bushy eyebrows. She describes the stature of the person. She also describes, and this is going to be real important in a trial, his exit from the location where a bloody shoe print is found. She's going to be able to establish that she saw someone wearing a mask, bushy eyebrows, that stature, exit through those rear sliding doors, and a bloody footprint is found. So again, that's going to be another piece of evidence, circumstantial in nature, but that bloody footprint can be tied to that person exiting from that location. That's going to be a real important part of this trial, I'm sure.
0: You know, very important that someone in the chat just said this, and thank you for saying this. It's a possibility that the DoorDash driver could have seen Brian Kohlberger. And then you have a, an eyewitness identification. And again, we don't know this, but it's a possibility. We're throwing that out there. Could the DoorDash driver have seen him? So there you could potentially have an eyewitness identification of, of, of Brian Kohlberger, uh leaving, leaving the uh, 1122 King Street. So that's a distinct possibility. The other thing someone mentioned in the chat that the mask was a uh, like a surgical mask. I don't know if that's true or not. Uh, is any can anyone uh, enlighten me about that? Was the mask a surgical mask? You, you
2: know, Bill. From what I remember reading in the affidavit. It, uh, if I remember correctly, I think it only covered the mouth uh, is what it said. I don't know if it covered the nose. So it sounded like it could be a surgical mask, but I don't think it was actually described as that in the F. I didn't think that's so. I,
0: I just read know. a black mask. It didn't describe yeah. it. If yeah. that's the case, if it was a surgical mask, you could potentially identify someone's face that's wearing a surgical mask. I know mm-hmm. a defense attorney would try to poke holes in that identification, but there's There's a possibility you could make an ID.
2: I mean, if it's covered from the mouth, that's only like a third of the face is covered. So you have two thirds, let's say, that's exposed. And uh, I think you make a good argument, Bill, that there could be a possible identification based on a person wearing a surgical mask. If it's, you know, if it's up here, that's probably half the face, maybe a little more difficult. But again, uh, she does describe those bushy eyebrows. I think the stature uh, that she described as well uh, fits to Brian Koberger. So I guess we'll have to see on that.
0: Uh, many, uh, thank you for the 199 super chat. Claims it's a uh, it was a COVID surgical mask. If that's the case, then I think you could potentially identify someone's face that's wearing a mask that's covering Mike. You, you're staying quiet, the attorney's <laughs> staying quiet here. Yeah, I'm uh, starting to get worried about that myself. Come yeah, on, you know what?
3: As, as I'm trying to go back and forth between thinking, how would the defense look at this and how would a prosecutor look at this? I think, the, from the prosecutor's point of view. I think you got a lot of inf- great information from DM. She described his stature, his physicality, um, his, you know, e- exiting the, uh, the the premises and she described his bushy eyebrows. Um, I would not ever want to see her now put into a, a lineup situation where they bring in Kohlberger and like five other fillers. Uh, I would not want to risk that. Um, I wouldn't want to risk a, a voice identification also, Um I think it's too risky as a prosecutor. I think she's given you as much information as she possibly could from a defense attorney's point of view. I I think I would want to take that chance. I don't think you have anything to lose really. If you, if you, if somehow they put him in a lineup and if she identifies him, okay, she identifies him. She's, he's already been, you know, there's a lot of evidence against him and sure she mentioned his, his eyebrows, but if there was a lineup situation and she fails to identify him, or they do a voice lineup and she fails to identify him. I mean, holy smokes, that would be a, t- a tremendous amount of, you know, um, reasonable doubt that the defense attorney, remember, defense attorney has to impress one person into believing that there's reasonable doubt. Forget all the DNA stuff. Forget all the phone stuff. Look at this. The, the person who actually saw you know, someone in that house can't identify the person standing in front of them in a lineup, can't identify their voice right there in a lineup. It's, it's risky. You want to do it as a prosecutor to like seal the deal, to nail him down. On the other, on the other hand, I think if they got, if they got a lot of evidence against them, don't risk it. Play it safe. You know,
0: Mike, one of the things I was going to say too is that I think that a good defense attorney could basically uh, dismiss the lineup if there was a hit by saying, of course she ID'd him. His face has been all over, all over national media. Mm-hmm. It's been all. So mm-hmm. to take the chance of a mis ID oh. is, is not worth it because yeah. there you have it. Like that, that's what a defense attorney is going to say it was, well, wait a minute, of course she ID'd him. You know, his his face is all over the world. Right. Folks, this is police off the cuff, real crime stories. If you like real crime from a police perspective, then you're in the right place, right? We're all from a NYPD. Uh, and if you're not subscribed to us, go on our YouTube, hit that subscribe button, give us a thumbs up, and ring that bell. Uh, make comments. We love to hear your comments. and We love to interact with your comments. We also have a Patreon with three different levels if you want to support us financially. And we have a YouTube channel memberships with, count them, five different levels. So we appreciate all our fans, subscribers, and friends on here. and. uh we would we would love you uh, to to subscribe and join us here. This was put on uh, CNN, and um, I want to this. They they're talking about his online postings. We have to get to this here.
7: Bring insights into the mental state of Brian Koberger, the Ph.D. criminology student accused of murdering four University of Idaho students. The New York Times uh, has uncovered online posts from his past that paint a picture of an isolated and depressed. T- teenager. In one post, Koberger writes, I can say and do whatever I want with little remorse. And In another, uh, as I hug my family, I look into their faces. I see nothing. It is like I am looking at a video game. Koberger is currently being held on four counts of first-degree murder and the fatal stabbings of uh, Kaylee Gonsalves, Madison Mogan, Uh, uh, Zaina Kurnodal and Ethan Chapin. Joining us now is CNN chief law enforcement analyst, John Miller and retired FBI profiler, uh, Kathy Canning Mello. She's also an instructor of criminology at uh, the University of North Carolina at Wilmington. Uh, Kathy, uh, let me start with you first. How typical is it to learn that a suspected killer viewed their own life as it were a video game uh, without emotion? I mean, when you hear about something like that, uh, some of this starts to make sense.
8: Yeah, absolutely. I find these texts really fascinating, and they give us some really, I think, important insights as to what Brian Koberger was feeling during his teen years, um, where he was experiencing a a dark period, right? We have him addicted to heroin at the time. He's talking about suicidal ideation. He's talking about uh, this lack of emotion that certainly we see evidenced at the crime scene.
7: And John, how do you think all of these details will impact the case uh, as investigators try to determine a motive?
1: Well, motive has been still the burning question here. Because-
0: you know, I just want to—I can't—I can't let go of this. The media has to know motive. They've been told a thousand times you don't have to prove motive, but they—they they hang their hat on it. They always want it. While I'm at, at it, I wanted to, to talk about how this his. I call it perpology, a look into his background, this information hurts him. It really hurts. It shows that he has the mental state of mind to do the crime that he's been arrested for. So this, uh, you know, definitely hurts the defense. I can't see the defense attorney wanting wanting this information out there. No, he's, this, he's describing himself as a textbook
2: sociopath, no emotion, little remorse. It says lack of conscience on in the description of sociopath. So he's, he's already making the case that he's a sociopath way before he commits any of these murders. Absolutely.
3: Yeah. Bill, uh, can I uh, follow
0: Phil? Absolutely.
3: Yeah. I think really, yeah, this, there's no way this, this relevant revelation of this material helps Coburg in any way, uh, because it's going to be, you know, irrelevant for, for the decision by the jury whether or not um, he did it or not, uh, because it there's no insanity defense insanity defense in Idaho. The only way it could possibly be relevant and help him is if he actually is found guilty of capital murder, and the jury then has to decide murder, uh, you know, the death penalty or life behind bars without possibility of parole. Then I think if I'm the defense attorney, I want that information before the jury. I want them to know that he has had trouble associating with human beings and and he struggled with this for like, you know, 13 years before he actually committed the homicides. Good point. Um, But as far as the trial is concerned, I think the revelation here would absolutely hurt him. I agree totally.
0: Absolutely. Great point.
1: Because there is still no indication that he knew any of the victims, and it is such a a personal and hateful crime. And yet, you know, as Kathy could underscore, when I mean, every offender in the serial killer or mass murderer um, field is going to be highly individualized, each one is different. that's a given. And yet there are common traits that run across these offenders, and one of them, um, and he kind of reads us through this in these emails is, uh, an inability to feel sympathy, um, no relationship with empathy, uh, an inability to feel guilt or remorse, which, of course, is, is the combination, the emotional cocktail that allows them to do the things they do and then to be able to repeat those acts uh, again if they're not stopped.
7: And John, this detail in the times that the suspect became fascinated with criminal psychology, said he hoped to provide counseling for high, high profile criminals. I mean, that is that's a wrinkle uh, that you don't see in many of these types of cases. At least you know, Jim,
1: yeah. this is highly unusual, but it's also in this case, there are so many things that really beg to be dug into more. If you look at the The posting he did as part of his master's project, asking criminals to come in and be interviewed with him as the coordinator about the psychological traits of decision-making during their crimes. What were you thinking when you did this violent act? How did it make you feel? What was your plan? What, if anything, did you leave behind? On one hand, you could say that was a study, although the structure is very non-academic. On the other hand, you could say that this was... um, as, uh, as Mary Ellen O'Toole posited uh, last night, uh, this was an act of voyeurism, meaning these interviews would uh, allow him to immerse himself in, in feelings that he was having by experiencing them through others.
7: Uh, that is disturbing. And, and Kathy, uh, the New York Times says that one of uh, Koberger's friends told them uh, or told this individual he suffered from a neurological condition called uh, visual snow. Uh, where people see scattered dots like static on a TV. And and one of the posts says, and I'm reading here, uh, it is as if the ringing in my ears and the fuzz in my vision is simply all the demons in my head mocking me. It doesn't sound good.
8: No, uh, it sounds very disturbing. But we're going to have to have, I think, more deep interviews of people who know Brian well in order to understand that condition that he had and any impact it might have had on his behavior at the time or later in life. And if the condition still exists, we don't know that. So I think it's gonna be incumbent upon prosecutors, investigators, and it's great now that they have a few more months to do this, to to conduct these long behaviorally oriented interviews. When I was in the BAU, we had an instrument called the General Assessment Questionnaire that had a hundred questions Questions that probed into areas of an individual's life, their their personality traits, their hobbies, their attitudes, uh, and and it was uh, meaning to get more insight about their behaviors. Because we have some, you know, casual contacts that said, you know, he's charming. Well, do we really know he's charming? Does he lack empathy? Um, is he cunning and manipulative? Um, you know, is he controlling? Uh, does he harbor misogynistic feelings? All of these things are are going to be evident in people that know him well. Certainly, we're getting some indications of his personality through his online persona, but we need to understand him offline as well, because at some point, the prosecutor is going to have to paint a picture of this individual to a.
0: You know, we had spoken about this uh, very very early on, and we we used New York City words, the NYPD terminology, the perpology, and this is the study of his background. And they're doing a deep, deep dive, and every time they dig a little deeper, they find out things about him that don't disprove that he did this, uh, lend proof that he did this. I'm reading a lot in the chat, and, you know, people like, Complaining about the crime scene, there's not enough evidence. They haven't released one hundredth of their evidence yet. One of the most important things, and we've talked about this ad nauseum, is the autopsy. The autopsies have never been released. That is a the, the amount of evidence potentially that was recovered during the autopsy is is un, is unbelievable. And uh, including potentially the perpetrator's DNA, including fibers, uh Potentially, well, it obviously shows what type of knife was used by the wounds. And a lot of folks aren't happy with the touch DNA on the button of the of the sheath. That's, that's not good enough for, for a lot of people. But I'm sure it's not all they have. And what I'm referring to commonly in the criminal justice field and the law field is called the totality of the circumstances, the totality of the evidence, all the evidence. Let's not jump to conclusions. Many people are not happy with the pings that shows he was in the yard. (laughs) They want the ping to be in the living room. I mean, come on, stop. (laughs) You know, Billy,
2: we're not even uh, privy to uh, what – Uh, DNA or forensic evidence was recovered from the victim's hands. We know that the hands were probably bagged and examined. We know that uh, at least one or perhaps more of the victims uh, had defensive wounds, meaning that they fought back. So again, uh, we don't know what evidence, like you said, was recovered from the autopsy. Now, just in the apartment alone, he could have transferred evidence back to uh, the apartment. Perhaps he took a uh, souvenir uh, a lot of these serial killers will do things like that. There was a dog in the in the apartment where the murders took place. There could have been dog hair on his clothing that was transferred back to the location or even in his car. Those are all the things that we don't know at this point. And I'm sure, like you said, there's going to be a treasure trove of evidence implicating Brian into this murder.
0: Absolutely. Pamela White, thank you for the uh, $2 Super Chat. I, I've seen the, um, the NBC show and I've seen... Um, some of the ABC show in regards to this case, there was no new information in any of those shows that we hadn't already reported on. They just had two hours to do it and uh, an unlimited budget. So I didn't see anything in either one of those shows uh, that was that was smoking gun or, or new information. Someone asked in the chat, um, can the defense uh, make DM viewer lineup? The, the answer is no, they cannot. They cannot make a viewer lineup. She even if they determine uh, she's a witness for the for the defense, they can interview her about that, but they cannot force her to view a lineup. Mike.
3: Yeah, I think, um, well, since this is a totally circumstantial case and you've got the DNA, you've got the phone pinging, you know, you've got the uh, uh, DM statements. It's, you know, many, you know, as you guys know, as homicide investigators, a lot of the evidence you get is circumstantial. It's, it's rare that somebody will, you know, uh, make a, a statement to implicate themselves. Does it happen? Sure. But a lot of that comes to trial is going to be a combination of a lot of circumstantial evidence and maybe no direct evidence whatsoever. So there's a, 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 a tidal wave of circumstantial evidence against Brian Kohlberg. But for some reason, people are like, okay, well, we got that but I want direct evidence. I want, I want that pinging to be in the sec in the second floor bedroom. And if, if, if you don't have that uh, you know, maybe that's reasonable doubt Uh, these unreasonable kinds of expectations. Um, The only way you're going to be totally satisfied, I think for some people is if he actually decides to plead guilty to something like an offer of life behind bars without possibility of parole, he will, at his elocution, he will then admit to everything. But other than that, you know, you uh, you'll never know each and every single thing that went on in in that house, um, and that's just the way it is.
2: Mike, I got to respond because I agree with what you're saying 100. But I want to put on my legal hat here for a second. Reasonable, uh, it has to be beyond reasonable doubt. Now to me, very reasonable. It's four o'clock in the morning. His phone's pinging outside the location, maybe not in the living room. A murder took place. We have all this other evidence. So to me, that's reasonable to think that he was, that it was his phone and he was there and he's the one that's the person that we believe is the perpetrator. So all of the specific evidence that's going to be put forward, it has to be within reason. Now, Mm -hmm. if someone, a defense attorney or his defense is going to come up with a story that, oh, he didn't have his phone. He loaned it to somebody. Nonsense, because he never reported it missing. Uh, He was in possession of it when he was arrested. During the time when that car stop took place in between Washington and uh, Pennsylvania, uh, they were tracking the phone. He was stopped. It was him that was at the wheel of the car. So all of these things are going to be something that prosecution is going to say. A reasonable person believes that this was him, this was his phone, you know, and all of those components are going to be the standard that is met in the criminal justice system in the United States beyond the reasonable doubt. And I think we're going to get there.
0: Phil, yeah. the other thing is, is that to, to add the totality of the evidence, a camera shows his car parked in the backyard parking lot of right. the house. Right. Put, add that to the cell phone page. And someone in the chat just said he lives six minutes away. That's totally incorrect. He lives fifteen to twenty minutes away uh, on the University of Washington, uh, Washington State campus. So get your facts straight before you start spewing venom. In there I think saying, it's about ten you know,
2: miles. You're right, Billy. The, the travel time is about fifteen minutes or so. So yeah, you're correct on that.
0: And he, you know, he did. His car was seen fleeing at a high rate of speed. You know, the other thing is, and uh, which they haven't even touched upon, the car has a computer. They'll, they'll look into that computer and see if there is, in fact, a GPS or if the car tracks itself, which many cars do these days. That would be like, b- besides the potential forensic evidence inside that car, blood, hair, fibers, that would be another smoking gun piece of evidence. I, You know, I, I've said a million times on this show, uh, you know, probable cause uh, definition is facts and circumstances that would allow a reasonable person to believe that a crime has been committed and the person arrested committed a crime. Right, not the highest standard. It's not, in fact, committed. It's not beyond a reasonable doubt. But that is what the police need in this country to make an arrest. So now they start building this case based upon the initial standard of proof, which was probable cause. And now, as we say, connect all these dots, and this becomes... A very, very powerful case. And one-tenth of the evidence is, I mean, there is so much more evidence that the police have that they haven't released. And, Mike, you said, what was it March 1st? There's potentially going to be a lot more evidence released.
3: Right. Um, Then you'll see a lot more evidence that it'll double the amount of evidence that we've got so far released, maybe even triple it. Who knows, depending on how much evidence they actually got out of the uh, location. Um, but I think the uh, argument in the, in the discussion over, you know, uh, viewers wanting to see a lot of information, I think it's good. Um, I think it's good because this way people, when we discuss all of these issues, people get an understanding that what's the difference between circumstantial evidence? What's the difference d- between that and direct evidence? Um, you know, how, do, how, how is evidence gathered? How is evidence interpreted by the prosecution? How is evidence interpreted by the uh, defense? I think this is a fabulous discussion and it enlightens people to say, wow, okay, we'll take this really high profile tri- trial and we'll go over like the OJ Simpson trial was, you know, 25, 28 years ago. And I remember being in law school when that occurred and we spent the entire semester in, in, our, in our evidence class discussing that every single day. This is, a, this is fabulous stuff. Not everybody's going to understand what we're talking about, and, but not, and not everyone's going to agree. Because there's always that other side of of the issue is looking at it from his side and what, you know, excuses he could make and how he could attack the prosecution's evidence. Uh, the, the viewers should really, uh, you know, try to try
0: to understand that. Absolutely. Uh, Magical Mary, thank you for the 499 Super Chat. Too many people believing rumors not stated in the affidavit, mm-hmm. Mary. It's not only that; it's people make up their own uh, their own uh, theories and their own uh, evidence based on things that aren't fact, things that are just internet rumors. And that's one of the reasons when they talk about, you know, fourteen thousand tips or whatever the amount of tips they they got on this case, that was problematic in itself because we know from being investigators. Tips, maybe five or ten percent of them are any even good whatsoever. The other 80 or 90 percent are just 100 percent garbage. And that's mm-hmm. a French word for garbage, you know. But total and but they have to check out each and every one of those tips. So it becomes a lot, a lot of work. And you may say, Oh, too bad. Well, it puts a smoke screen and it puts the police doing things they shouldn't have to do because of, you know, just tips that people want to call in. And and uh, call a tip line with, with something that's totally not true.
2: Absolutely, Billy. You know, I, just real quick about the uh, about the timeline when he left the location. Uh, he turns his cell phone back on. It starts pinging again about thirty or thirty-one minutes after the exit from the location. Now. And he's a distance away from the, the, the location where the murders took place. Now, did he do that purposely to try and establish that he was in a different location? And if you look at the way that the cell phone ping, it was like a U. He went out, he went, um, I believe he went in a uh, southerly direction, then he went west, and then he went north back to his home. Uh, at, at about 5.30, the phone is pinging at his residence. So again, did he do that with the intent of showing that he was at a different location Or did he just need his cell phone? And what did he do in that 30 minutes or 31 minutes that he was, uh, you know, that the phone was off from the time that we believe he left the location where the murders took place till the phone starts pinging again? Those are all questions that I think uh, investigators are going to want to know the answers to. And perhaps that can uh, look uh, maybe a roadmap of where they should be searching. Perhaps in that 30 minutes he discarded the knife. Perhaps he discarded bloody clothing. Uh, We don't know what he did in that period of time. But, uh, you know, again, I I believe he turned it back on to establish that he was away from
0: the location. Absolutely. ACB, thank you for the $15 super chat. Hi, I was wondering at which point Brian would be fully assessed mental health-wise. Already was cleared to be fit of mind. Police off the cuff. You know something, Uh, Mike, I'm going to answer this, but I'm totally not an expert, and I'm going to toss it to you. I believe it's probably in the prosecution's best interest to give him a mental health examination so that later on or when the case is over, he doesn't have that as an appeal.
3: That's a good strategy. That's a good strategy. Um, Do you remember years ago, something called the MMPI, the Minnesota multiphasic personality inventory. It's a series of hundreds of questions, like three or 400 questions. It would take hours and hours to answer all these questions. And what it does is they, it, it, probes every single bit of your personality, likes, dislikes, your character, things you like, hobbies. And the, the, the uh, other speaker uh, on CNN actually um, kind of alluded to that sort of test. Um, and there's a lie quotient built in. So if you take the test, you understand that there are uh, tests that are uh, questions that are re- repeated, but repeated slightly differently to see. So it's really hard to lie on the test. Um, and I think it probably would be a good idea. I'm sure the defense is going to want to do it just in case later on as, uh, for a, uh, post, you know, uh, post conviction, you know, hearing to determine his, his fate, but it also would be beneficial to the prosecutor because if you get a, if he falls within a normal range of human behavior, then that precludes anything further, uh, going going you know uh, later on um i think it's pretty good i think it could benefit both sides in certain ways at different parts of the trial i agree
0: absolutely I, let me play a little bit of this here this
9: was to obtain any footage From the early morning hours of November 13, 2022 in the area of the King Road residence and surrounding neighborhoods in an effort to locate the suspects or suspect vehicles traveling to or leaving from the King Road residence. This video canvas resulted in the collection of numerous surveillance videos in the area from both residential and business addresses. I have reviewed the numerous videos that were collected and have had conversations with other officers and they go on to say that. Um, A review of camera footage indicated, and this is where that white Hyundai Elantra comes into play. A review of camera footage indicated that a white sedan, hereafter suspect vehicle one, was observed traveling westbound in the 700 block of Indian Hills Drive in Moscow at approximately 3.26 AM and westbound on Steiner Avenue at Idaho State.
0: I just want to comment quickly on that, the title of Suspect Vehicle 1. I don't know why the hell they named it that. What that does, it, it makes people think, oh, is there a Suspect Vehicle 2? Like, why did they name that car that? It really should have just been Suspect Vehicle, period. Period.
3: Mike? I agree. It, it Phil's absolutely right. Uh, name, and you're right. Naming it that way, with that unique title, opens up just one more thing to uh one more line of argument for the defense attorney to say Absolutely. there was definitely a co-conspirator because this is suspect vehicle one and there's somewhere out there a second suspect in vehicle number two definitely
9: yeah state highway 95 in moscow at approximately 3 28 a.m on this video it appeared suspect vehicle 1 was not displaying a front license plate. At this point, they didn't know it was the the um the vehicle that we now know, the white Hyundai Elantra. This is how they first were able to identify.
0: So what we know now is after the fact, of course, is that suspect vehicle 1 that we're referring to didn't have a front plate because the car was registered in Pennsylvania, which does not require a f- front plate. Which also is another little suspect thing is that all of a sudden he decided to register it in Washington, in the state of Washington. And someone had raised the fact that all oh, the it, it expired. Oh so he re-registers it after he's charged with killing, or that he knew he had committed this I would put it that way, that he killed four people and he's gonna re-register his car. Five five days after the murders, Billy. Five days after the murder. Right. So I think that also is suspect. Why did he re-register his car? Because in case that plate was caught on camera he doesn't know for the most part most of the time video cameras whether it's a ring camera a doorbell camera a camera inside a commercial location like this gas station almost i've never seen a camera other than a red light camera catch the plate on a vehicle
3: true billy Billy, i think the idea the, the fact that because it didn't have a front plate that makes the hyundai that much more unique and so mm-hmm. it just adds to the level of circumstantial evidence, because obviously if it doesn't have a front plate in Idaho and Washington require front plates, then it can't be a, a, a car from owned by anybody else in those two states. I think it's fabulous.
0: Absolutely.
9: A review of footage from multiple videos obtained from the King Road neighborhood showed multiple sightings of suspect vehicle one starting at 3.29 a.m. and ending at 4.20 a.m. Remember the timeline of when they think these murders occurred. These sightings show suspect vehicle one makes an initial three passes by the 1122 King Road residence,
0: And so we connect the cell phone pings with the car caught on video. That's such powerful evidence. I mean, ridiculously powerful evidence. And People that are saying the pings don't put him in. Yes, yes, it does. It puts him right there. And you know, anyone that's saying differently it doesn't know what they're talking about. Well, you have the pings, and then you have the video of the car. So yeah, it's not even just
2: one thing. It's two things, and and it's you know reasonable to think that they're together.
0: Well, that's where we when we talk about circumstantial evidence being piled up higher and higher and higher. Yeah, this circumstantial evidence looks like Mike's library. All the books are <laughs> piled on top of each other. I agree. (laughs) I'm addicted to books.
3: Go ahead, Mike. I'm sorry. Oh, no. I said I'm just addicted to books. I can't help (laughs) you.
9: When lent to drive, based off of my experience as a patrol officer, this is a residential neighborhood with a very limited number of vehicles that travel in the area during the early morning hours. Upon review of the video, there are only a few cars that that enter exit this area during this time frame. And this is also because remember, he is charged with first degree murder. there is a level of premeditation and planning to this. Keep this in mind as we hear. All-
0: you know, guys, this is four 30 in the morning in Moscow, Idaho. There are no cars on the road, virtually no cars, except this speeding white Hyundai Elantra without a front plate whose occupant, uh, just committed four murders, you know, and it's caught on video. I mean, I circumstantial. Absolutely. Can we tell if there was another person in the car other than the person dropped? We don't know that right now, right? But all of this, again, strong, strong, strong circumstantial evidence.
2: Billy, whatever video they picked up this car on, that video would also be able to show if there were any other cars passing at that time of the night. So the point you're making is going to be clearly established.
0: Absolutely. Schmitty, thanks for the $5 Super Chat. Detective Phil, you are gold. True detective. I love how you construct the pieces of this puzzle. The timing of the phone being off could be big. Absolutely. Thank you. you know, Thank you so the phone being on and the phone being off, both of those things are huge. And the fact that he turned it off and then strategically turned it on after he felt he was out of harm's way. That's important, too, for the prosecution. Put another book on top of Mike's uh, library. with As Mike posts. always
2: says, consciousness of guilt. I love yes. that song, Mike, Mike. Yes. And, and that Thank really you. fits right you know. here.
0: Another circumstantial book on Mike's library. Suspect Vehicle 1 can be seen entering the
9: area a fourth time at approximately 4.04 a.m. It can be seen driving eastbound on King Road, stopping and turning around in front of 500 Queen Road, number 52, and then driving back westbound on King Road. When Suspect Vehicle 1 is in front of the King Road residence, it appeared to unsuccessfully attempt to park or turn around in the road. The vehicle then continued to the intersection of Queen Road and King Road, where it can be seen completing a three-point turn and then driving eastbound again down Queen Road. Suspect Vehicle 1 is next seen departing the area of the King Road residence at approximately 4.20 a.m. at a high rate of speed. Suspect Vehicle 1 is next observed traveling southbound on Walenta Drive. Based on my knowledge of the area and review of camera footage in the neighborhood, that does not show... Suspect Vehicle 1, during that time frame, I believe that Suspect Vehicle 1 likely exited the neighborhood at Palouse River Drive and Conestoga Drive. Palouse River Drive is at the southern edge of Moscow and proceeds into Whitman County, Washington. Eventually, the road leads to Pullman, Washington. Pullman, Washington is approximately 10 miles from Moscow, Idaho. Both Pullman and Moscow are small college towns, and people commonly travel back and forth between them. Talked about this before when he was ultimately apprehended, the connection, the geographical distance between his university and where these murders
0: You know, folks, also, uh, Nancy Jennings, thank you for the $5 Super Chat. I would love to hear the conversations between Brian and his dad while driving cross-country. Oh, to be a fly on that dashboard. Well- (laughs) I don't think he told his dad what he had, what he had done, you know, but,
2: uh, you know, what might be interesting about that, Billy, what his demeanor was after they were stopped by the police. If he became rattled and nervous, I wonder what that would, uh, i we're not going to know, but that would have been an interesting uh, observation.
0: Well, when we saw his face on the, on the, the, uh, body worn video by the one trooper that was on the passenger side, his face looked like terrified, like startled and terrified. Yeah. I agree. Look, he was holding this secret inside of him. Uh this and every time he got pulled over, which was twice during this trip, he probably thought the police know. The police know, uh, you know. This could be it. Herbs always believed that the police know things they don't know, you know. And uh so yeah, this is uh this is ama- and oh the other thing is when we talk about the to- totality of the evidence and the totality of the circumstances, don't forget he had reconned this address on 12 prior times, before this date, 12 times, what's he doing? Why is he doing that? Does anyone have an answer to that, Mike? It shows,
3: and I hate to keep using the phrase, but it shows consciousness of guilt. Uh, and is. even on that particular night, or early morning when he did it, uh, the, the the idea that he's driving back and forth, you know, three or four times before he actually does the act, Um, I think Phil had alluded to this and I alluded to it a a little bit uh, a week ago. I'm thinking he's trying to psych himself up to do it because the semester's ending. Uh, He's spent a lot of time doing this. He's been uh, doing reconnaissance and I'm trying to get into his head and I'm thinking perhaps he's just trying to steal himself for this burst of adrenaline to go in there, do it, and then get out. Um, And I'm thinking, again, consciousness consciousness of guilt.
0: Mike, uh, Arkansas, thank you for a $5 super chat. She asked a question. I don't know if you have talked about this already. I think we have, but I'll I'll honor you and I'll ask the question of Mike. Uh, can you elaborate on why they would seal the search warrant for law enforcement safety? Mike?
3: I think that uh, they, they sealed the affidavit for uh, specifically the Washington State University uh, apartment uh, simply because they they probably have talked to a lot of students, graduate students, undergraduate students, students who are living in the same uh, li- that lived in the same building as him, and seeing the the uh, the the uh, te- you know the the rumors and the viciousness of some of the rumors about the um, I'm not going to say his name, the bartender, the former boyfriend, you know the 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 hoodie guy. Um, I think it's just trying to control. The uh, mayhem that's gonna follow the release of all that information and, and for no other purposes.
0: That's Absolutely. Steve McGarrett, thank you very much for the 4.99 super chat. Very much appreciated. Folks, this is Police Off the Cuff Real Crime Stories. If you like real crime stories from a police perspective, you're in the right place. We're all former NYPD. And if you're not subscribed to us, please go on our YouTube, hit that subscribe button, give us a thumbs up, ring that bell, make comments, share us with your friends your family, even your enemies, if you want. (laughs) No, don't send your enemies to us. They might not like us. We don't need no enemies. We don't need need any enemies. We have enough already from our police careers. But, uh, you know, look, this case is is fascinating. But I think that when we really look at it and and, and you have experience in in the law enforcement business, it really seems like, look, some folks are not satisfied with the amount of evidence, but – Believe me, sit back and wait. There's much more evidence where the evidence has come from in this case. Phil?
2: Joe Murray, attorney at law. Have you
0: found yourself in a jam? Are you in need of
2: legal counsel in the New York area? Do you need a victim's advocate? Well, Joe Murray is your man. He's not only an experienced trial attorney, he's also a retired (laughs) 15-year member of the NYPD. He literally knows both sides of defense. His website is jmurray-law.com. His telephone number is 646-838-1702. Or you could email Joe at joe at jmurray-law.com. Joe is a, a big supporter of police off the cuff real crime stories and a very capable and competent criminal defense attorney.
0: You know, Phil, you used, uh, and I, I don't think you were familiar with, or you knew what you were doing, but you used the oh, double on You use a double entendre. You said <laughs> defense, <laughs> He's a top defense. <laughs> he comes. He knows both sides of both you know sides of defense. That's a Bronx D A. I was waiting for you to catch that, Bill. I was like, <laughs> not defense. Defense. No you used a Brooklynism. We love Brooklynisms on this show. Yeah. What, uh, amazing. <laughs> yeah, I was waiting for you to catch that because I've been doing that. For a I a caught bit. it. I don't know if you ever used it
2: before, but let's go I back. Have, <laughs> I, have. I have. I've been saying it consistently for probably about the last <laughs> 10 times or so, but I'm glad you caught that. Shows that your true uh, detective abilities.
0: That's right. Well, uh, well, let me make a quick it.
2: comment about, yeah. about what we were just talking about uh, that Mike was talking about, you know, uh, regarding the, the recon of location from August, you know, uh, he had this insatiable appetite to kill manifesting inside of him. He did extensive, extensive, uh, research into serial killers, criminality. So again, it was almost like protocol that he would do this type of recon. And I think that, you know, the point that you made Mike, that it was building in him, it was manifesting inside him. I think that's a great point.
0: Jeff B. Thank you for the $5 super chat, and I appreciate your kind comment. If NBC was smart, they would put you guys on national television. Keep up the good work. Thank you so much, but they hate our accents. They don't like them in in Iowa, in the Midwest. They're like, oh, these guys. Look at this guy. He looks like Joe Pesci. What's he doing? Hey, yo. I don't know about that, Bill. There's a lot of comments, and they talk about our our, uh,
2: accents quite frequently, if you look at all the comments.
0: Phil's got the up-tempo Brooklyn accent. And Mike has the low key Bronx accent. Like, I'll get there when I get there, Bronx.
2: He's got that intellectual <laughs> accent for no, sure. That's right. He's got,
0: he's got the
2: both, you, got, you, you wear the intellectual <laughs> hat and you got the, the hard nosed uh, detective accent, New York. <laughs>
0: hey, I live in the Bronx, but I got a law degree and I'm a professor. So
2: <laughs> <laughs> That's how he talks when he's not on our show. That's right. You right. guys You're are right.
0: merciless. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. When he's on our show, he's very articulate. He's very slow. He's almost like a Midwestern professor. You
2: know? I guarantee when he gets excited, his New York comes out. I'm sure yeah. of it. My my <laughs>
3: girls tease me about that because I say coffee, butter, <laughs> my over here. I can't help it.
2: Yeah, yeah.
0: You know, when I went to college in Buffalo, they always would point out like the words, like you just said, some of the words that we say with our New Yorkisms, you know, and I remember I took a course in French literature one time and the teacher like looks at me, he goes, where are you from? And I go, I'm from New York. He goes, no, 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 no. You're not from New York. Where, where in New York? I go, Long Island. He goes, that's it. He goes, I knew you had a different, because I grew up on Long Island and Long Island accent is actually different than, than New York city, Bronx, Brooklyn, all of that stuff. So yeah. he actually picked that out, you know? So uh, let me just play a little bit more of this. Cause this is a very well-informed, uh, on, on law and crime, they. This is a, a great report. Let me just play a little bit more of it.
9: Law enforcement officers provided video footage of suspect one, video, vehicle one to forensic examiners. identify the year, make, and model of these unknown vehicles. The Forensics Examiner, and they go into the Forensics Examiner's uh, background and experience. After reviewing the numerous observations of Suspect Vehicle 1, the Forensics Examiner initially believed that Suspect Vehicle 1 was a 2011-2013 Hyundai Elantra, but upon further review, he indicated it could also be a 2011-2016 Hyundai Elantra. As a result, investigators have been reviewing information on persons in possession of a vehicle of this type investigators were given access to video footage on the Washington State University WSU campus. This is how they were able to connect the car to Coburger. If we have some more time, I'd like to get into it before we take our break. So let me do this real quick. Okay. So we're not going to take breaks. I'm going to continue that. Video indicated that at approximately 2:44 AM on November 13th, 2022, a white sedan which was consistent with the description of the white Hyundai Elantra known as suspect vehicle one was observed on WSU surveillance cameras traveling north on southeast Nevada Street at Northeast Stadium Way. At approximately 2.53 a.m., this is, again, before the murders, a white sedan, which is consistent with the description of the white Elantra, known as Suspect Vehicle 1, was observed traveling southeast on Nevada Street in Pullman, Washington, towards SR-270. SR-270 connects Pullman, Washington, to Moscow, Idaho. The camera footage from Pullman, Washington, was provided to the same FBI forensic examiner. The FBI forensic examiner identified the vehicle observed in Pullman, Washington, as being a 2014-2016 Hyundai Elantra. At approximately 5.25 a.m., this is after the killings, a white sedan, which was consistent with the description of suspect vehicle one, was observed on five cameras in Pullman, Washington, and on the WSU campus cameras. The first camera that recorded the white sedan was located at 1300 Johnson, in Pullman. The white sedan was observed traveling northbound on Johnson Road. Johnson Road leads directly back to West Palouse River Drive in a Moscow, which intersects with Conestoga Drive. I mentioned those streets before. The white sedan was then observed turning north on Bishop Boulevard and northwest on SR270. At approximately 5.27 a.m., the white Elantra was observed on cameras traveling northbound on Stadium Way at Nevada Street. They go on to talk a little bit more about where it goes. They provided a map. Uh, showing what the campus looks like and kind of what the area looks like. They go on to say, on November 25th, 2022, MMP, MPD, Moscow Police Department, asked area law enforcement agencies to be on the lookout for white Hyundai Elantras on the area. On November 29th, 2022, at approximately 12.28 a.m., Washington State University Police Officer Daniel Tiango queried white Elantras, Elantras registered at WSU. As a result of that query, he located a 2015 white Elantra with a Pennsylvania license plate, LFZ 8649. This vehicle was Brian Coburg.
0: Boom. How unbelievable is that, right? And again, let's talk about circumstantial evidence. Pretty soon Mike's books are going to go right out through the ceiling of his his, uh, library there because the (laughs) – The evidence is piling up so, so high and uh, strong, strong, strong evidence. You guys have nothing to say about that.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Very strong. And listen, like you said, uh, all of the circumstantial stuff is going to pile up along with the physical evidence that may have been left at the scene and I think that uh, it's going to be a tremendous, tremendous uh, lift to get uh, one of the jurors to find uh, doubt in, in in the prosecution's case.
0: Absolutely. Uh, ACB, thank you for the 15 Super Chat. I can't believe people are speculating he's innocent because he made too many mistakes. Do murderers always try to commit the perfect crime? You know something? I don't think most of them think about Uh while they're doing it not getting caught they don't think about oh I'm making a mistake here I'm leaving evidence here you know or else people that shoot people would take the spent shells with them all the time sometimes they try to do that it's almost impossible to find all of them though right but no it's rare that someone that commits a murder or murders will be conscious of not leaving behind evidence mike
3: hey bill yeah I just want to follow up to what uh, phil said Absolutely right. You look at the evidence, and you know it's all circumstantial, and there's a lot of it. And at the end, the prosecutor is going to make that plea to the to the jury. Just use your common sense. What have you seen? You know what is the you know it exactly. all adds up. The timeline fits pretty much perfectly. The uh, G, you know DM's assessment of the stature of the suspect walking out the door. Just use your common sense. What's the most reasonable explanation? For all of these things, who does it point to? And I think that's the best way to go. And that's the way they're going to do it. And then remind the jury, you know, the dis- the defense attorney is making these wild speculations, uh, which they're allowed to. And, and that is fine. But just you, the jury, just look at it. Use your common sense. As Phil said, You, you lose, use your common sense. Just look at it. Uh, where does it point? Where does it point to? And it points to one person. And I think that's the best way to go. And I think hopefully you'll get a jury that will, you know, look and you just use their common sense and say, yeah, uh, we agree. It really, all of it, all those little tidbits adds up to a tidal wave of, in, of information and evidence against only one person. Absolutely.
0: You know, Mike, that's so true. But I want to use the NYPD copism. Sometimes common sense is not that common. How many times have you heard that one, <laughs> right? True. Family Guy, thank you so much for the thank 999 you. Super Chat. You folks have been so generous today. Jennifer, thank you so much for the 5 Did you know that the defense wants Dylan's phone number and address? Though that's very common, Jennifer. For that. Yeah, that's for very that. common. They want to speak to all of the prosecution's potential witnesses. That's uh, nothing unusual about that. Uh, also, Sam McFarlane, thank you so much for the 1999 Super Sticker. You. you guys have been so, so generous today. By the way, she much.
2: doesn't have to speak to the defense before the trial. They can try to talk to her. She doesn't have to speak to them, uh, only if, if she's cross-examined on the stand, obviously.
0: Right. That's that's sort of a good thing. Like, if you if you don't want to be interviewed... By the defense, you just say I don't want to be interviewed. And What uh, they
2: may defense may do is they may look into her background, talk to neighbors, who is she, what is she about, does she use narcotics, things like of that nature. That's probably what that uh, request is going to be about. But she's not obligated to talk to the defense before trial.
0: Absolutely, my you little guys. Matter. When we were deciding to go on today, uh, you know, I don't like to go on and just rehash old stuff, but this was. I thought, uh, very fruitful today. We talked about a, a lot of things and, and sort of laying it out there, what's going to happen in the next six months. And my prediction, and, you know, I wish I could play a billion-dollar lottery ticket on this one, is that the defense is going, going to go into the hearings on June 26th. And one of the first things they're going to do or at, at the close of the hearing, they're going to say, Your Honor, we'd like to stay until September. And guess what the judge is going to do? You got it, defense. Why? Because no one wants to work over the summer. That that just happens to be the reality of the criminal justice system. And it's sort of like people have asked, well, what does Brian do? Not that I'm concerned about this. What does he do while there are all of these motions in defense? He sits in jail is what he does because he's not going to get bailed. This isn't New York City. you know. (laughs) He's not going to get bailed. And I don't see him. At any point, uh, a judge is going to give bail to uh, uh, Brian Kohlberger. Uh, Mike, what are your thoughts?
3: Yeah, no, he he doesn't have roots in the community, which is one of the things that they look at, you know. Uh, uh, future, um, you know, threat to the community, uh, that's there. No roots in the community. He's a flight risk. He's also uh, something of a suicide risk at this point uh, because of the mountain of evidence that he's facing. And uh, so there's a lot of risks to him personally and a lot of risks to the community. I, I can't see a judge at any point saying, you know, uh, we'll, we'll release you on uh, you know, if, if the Kohlberg Kohlberger's family puts their house up as collateral, I can't even see, I see, I don't think a judge would even consider it.
0: You know, Mike, not only is he a suicide risk, he's a threat to the community, which yeah. is the biggest reason not to bail him. Yeah. yeah. And he's no he community ties, suicide risk, Threat to the community. Oh yes, let's bail him. This is New York City. Give him a bail, and in fact, give him his gun back too. You know, <laughs> I'm I'm referring to New York City. I'm being sarcastic, but it's not far off. Uh, with right. the bail laws in New York City, are absolutely ridiculous. You so, know,
2: Billy, when you look at the uh, some of the uh, postings that we've seen of him, when you look at him, you know, I claim that I've met the devil and I've met serial killers in the, in the interview room. And I really believe that they were the devil. I think if you look at him, you can almost see that. And I would be uh, very, very interested in hearing uh, he's obviously solitary confinement. I don't think he's going to be around any other inmates, but the corrections officers, I wonder what their opinion is of his uh, demeanor uh, while he's incarcerated at this point. If they feel, you know, he describes himself as no remorse, no emotion. I wonder if that's coming through in the, uh, you know, just the, the, the interactions that he has with the corrections officers.
0: You know, it is, that's a part of this, that um, the behavioral aspect of this. And again, I, Phil, or uh, Mike Geary, professor Mike from the Bronx, none of us are behavioral analysts. And in the beginning of this, I was just like, ah, this is smoke and mirrors, but you know something now I think it actually works in the favor of the prosecution. Earlier on, I was like, oh, they're just trying to do this. There's smoke. But I think it works for the prosecution. Mike?
3: Yeah, I think the – because every time we see one more bit of information about his past or about his thought processes, it puts another nail in the coffin. Um, And it is absolutely essential to understanding – and you do want to prove that he did it. But you also do want – you also want to know, and especially for as a prosecutor for the jury – to, to put it into context, why? Uh, you don't have to prove why, but you'd like to
0: know. Absolutely. Every single one of us would like to say, oh, let him plead guilty and have him allocute and tell us exactly why and how and all of those things about this case. But it doesn't seem like that's going to happen, especially because the death penalty is a real reality in this case. And uh, someone asked earlier on from the chat, does the family, uh, say there is a conviction in this case, does the family have any say with the penalty in this case? And I would think any good prosecutor will meet with the family and just to get their feelings on uh, what is their views towards capital punishment, what is their views on uh, life without parole. And what would they like to be uh, the punishment to be in the event uh, of a conviction?
2: They're not going to want uh, if, like you said, there's a conviction and they're going for the death penalty. They wouldn't want a family member to go public uh, in the medium and say, you know, we don't want him to be given the death penalty. They're going to want to know that ahead of time. So I agree with you. They definitely would query the family about their views on capital punishment. 100%.
0: The Gonsalves have already said they want him to get the death penalty. In an interview, they already said that. And you I, I mean, look, I don't blame them. He took four lives, you know. And I know many absolutely. people are anti-death penalty, but you know, they didn't have their twenty-year-old daughter murdered at knife point by the by. And again, he's innocent to proven guilty. I know I have to say it. I don't say it often enough, and I take a beating for it in the chat. And one of the things I just want to say also is, guys, our moderators, all of our supporters, our subscribers, our friends off him. Thank you so much for listening to us. Absolutely. You know, we're amazed that uh, you know we can we can do this. We love doing it, and we sit here and do it, and we listen to you guys, and we try to impart some of our knowledge on this, and uh, we we try to um, touch almost every borough of New York City. You know, Manhattan, the Bronx. We got Phil from Brooklyn. We got Mike, Professor Mike, from the the Bronx. Now we got to get a few, we got to get a Staten Islander and someone from Queens and we'll have the 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 five the five boroughs but uh again thank you so much for listening I'm I'm getting long-winded Phil final thoughts. And then I'll Mike, I'll give you the final, final thoughts,
2: final thoughts. When we decided to do a show today, Bill, you alluded to, we don't want to just repeat things that we've already gone over. Uh, I agree with that hundred percent. I did write down 15 different things that I think we might want to look into going forward. And again, one of the top things I think is, uh, where the defense may be going with regard to trying to, uh, Uh, you know, attack the evidence and the credibility of the evidence. So some of the things that we talked about today, I think we touched on a little bit, but perhaps in future shows, we can uh, dissect some of the uh, angles that we think the defense is maybe going to take on this. And again, one last thing, everybody should just keep good thoughts and prayers for these families. These families have gone through tremendous, tremendous tragedy and trauma, God bless the souls of these four kids. And let's hope that this devil gets uh, the justice that we believe he deserves and and gets the the conviction for the four uh, murder first degrees. One last thing, the um, leverage would be, uh, you know, maybe he can dodge the needle, so to speak, uh, at the end if he is convicted to give us all the information. If a motive is never put forward. Uh, that's one of the things, the leverage that we could, uh, the prosecutors could use in the sentencing phase. Uh, maybe uh, give us all the information that uh, why you did this and we'll give you life without the possibility of parole and you dodge the needle.
0: Mike, your Bronx perspective. This
3: bo- this Bronx boy's perspective, I can't top Phil. I agree 100% with everything Phil said. And this is the, the way to go for our show in the future and keep the... Uh, the, the families uh, of the four murdered uh, young men and women, young men and three young women in your prayers. Uh, this is the way to go.
0: You surprised me, Mike. That was rather short winded. I thought you were going to give a, a Gettysburg address, but you. Yeah. No, no, Phil
3: said <laughs> it best. <laughs>
0: That's okay. Folks, again, uh, on behalf of myself, uh, retired detective Phil Grimaldi, retired sergeant and, Professor Mike Geary. Thank you so much for listening today. God bless and uh, stay safe out there.
2: Stay safe, everyone. Take care,
5: everybody. One episode just